seen the stage filled and with the choir loft up there as we come to worship the Lord this morning. I am grateful for what the Lord is doing here as he is leading us uh, in worship. This week, our lesson is going to be looking at the second oracle in Malachi. Some may argue the first primary oracle in Malachi. Last week, we looked at the first five verses, which is kind of an introductory oracle where God reminds us of his great love for us, of his great love for his people. And the people look back at him and said, well, how have you loved us? And you have that interaction between the people and God. Now, I've titled this series, Seven Steps to Personal Renewal. This, though this is not just for you as an individual or for me as an individual, I believe that the, the messages, the oracles that Malachi spoke to the people of Israel, if we take them to heart and we listen to what God's Word has to say and the warnings, especially in Oracles 2 through 6 that we'll begin today, and apply those to our lives, we will begin to see His Spirit bring renewal into our own hearts and our own lives. The first message last week was somewhat of an encouraging message. Let this be a warning. Messages 2 through 6 will not. Uh, Malachi, as he was speaking to the people of Israel, was dealing with some deep-seated problems. And in fact, at issue today, probably more than anything else, is a fundamental issue that we deal with today in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, and in our culture, in that we have lost sight of God's immense glory, His power, and His love, and we have, because of that, we have lost our sense of true, heartfelt worship. And when we lose sight of who God is and we fail to truly humble ourselves before an almighty God in worship, then we lose sight of who we are. Today's growth group lesson was titled or, or focused on who are we? Who, who are we as God's cre creation, as human beings created in his image? Who are we as those who have been reborn in Christ? But we will not fully and completely understand who we are until we see who he is and we humble ourselves before him. One of the things that we launched our growth group with this morning was this very idea that when you take the authority of a holy God away, then people get to decide who we are. And I mentioned in the group that I was launching that, you know, there are people today throughout the Western world who believe that they're cats. There's an article of a young lady in Denver from October 2019. She's 31 years old and has embraced the fact that her identity is not that of a human. Her identity is that of a cat. She has felt like she was a cat since childhood. She now insists that those loved ones around her refer to her. In fact, she changed her name to get this, her first and her last name, to Cat Lyons, K A T. L-Y-O-N-S. If you think I'm crazy, go Google it. Google women who think they're cats, and you'll find more than one. There's entire groups out there. How do we get to the point where we lose our identity to such that, in fact, one of them says that they firmly believe that they were born in the wrong species? How do we get to that point? 
One of the ways we get to that point is when we decide by our feelings and our emotions what is truth instead of what real truth is. And when we lose sight of who God is, we lose sight of what's true and what's right. So today's lesson, even the text itself, will challenge your hearts. Read along with me. We're going to begin in Malachi chapter 1. We'll start in verse 6. Uh, some of your Bibles will divide this up into two main sections. It's really one long oracle, uh, oracle. First is the disobedience of the leadership of Israel. Second is a warning to those leaders. A son, a son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priest who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible? When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? Or when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of armies and now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any favor of you? Uh, will he show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies. I will Accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. But you scorn it says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering? Am I to accept that from your hands, asked the Lord? The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations." Therefore, this decree is for you, priest. If you don't listen and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. Look, I'm going to rebuke your descendants and I will spread animal waste on your faces the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. 
My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways, but you are showing partiality in your construction, in your instruction. I'm sorry. Let me pray before we go any further. Father, as we read this text written so long ago, it's easy for us to separate ourselves from it and say, that's not me. But Holy Father, where we have failed to fall humbly and reverently before you, where we have failed to bring you our best, where, where we've given you anything less than all of our heart, let us understand that this is us. And Lord, we need to repent that we need to turn. We need to come back into your presence, recognizing who you are. We love you, Lord, because you loved us first. Draw us to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll see a couple things overarching that I want to give you from the text before we get into the details. First is this. You'll notice he uses the term Lord of Armies over and over and over and over. That's an overarching a phrase used, uh, that I, I, God's identity in Malachi is centered around this idea that he is the great and mighty king who leads the armies of eternity. This my, the minor prophets in particular often use that designation, that understanding of who God was as a, a, an idea of encouragement, especially for the Israelites who have been uh, lost their nation. They've seen their city destroyed. They were carted off into Babylon. And, and so the, the minor prophets would oftentimes seek to bring encouragement as a reminder that our God is a mighty God who leads armies. In Malachi, though, as encouraging as that term is, it's also a great warning. It's a reminder that he is the great and mighty Lord of all. He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of eternity. And because of his greatness and his power, when we fail to recognize that, we do so at our own peril. Second, the words, these words in this warning are directed at the priest of Israel. And so it may be very easy for us who are not pastors or not in some way leaders to separate ourselves and say, oh, well, he's talking to the pastors. He's not talking to me. But I want you to hear something here. One of the greatest things that we value as the people of God is that when Christ died on the cross and he poured out his blood for us as the one final sacrifice for all of us. The New Testament says that every single believer, every single person who's put their faith in Christ is now 
his own or her own priest. You'll hear it referred to as the priesthood of all believers. And here's why, why, we, why we love that idea is because of this. Back in the day, only the priests were allowed to enter into the presence of God, to to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Only the priests were able to bring your prayer. And so now, even in some major denominations, you still hear that term priest used. And the idea is that the priest is the go-between. You don't have in that pattern or in that, that structure, you would not have access to the throne of God. Your prayer only goes so far as it does through a priest. But that is not who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are all a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. You have the privilege, I have the privilege, every single born-again believer in Jesus Christ has the privilege of being able to come into the presence of God through the blood of Christ and bring our prayer and our praise and our worship and our offering directly directly to him. You are a priest in the kingdom of God. Now, the downside of that, if you say, or the responsibility that comes with that is the priest in the Old Testament had the privilege of access before the throne, but he had the responsibility of taking God and his word to the people. As a priest in the kingdom of God, every born-again believer in the church has the privilege of entering into the presence of God in prayer and worship, but you have the responsibility of then representing God and taking God to a lost and dying world. And so you and I, every single believer in Christ, we are priests in his kingdom. So this message is not just for some elite ruling class. This message is for every single person who has access as a priest into the presence of God. So walk with me quickly through this test. There's so much here. The first thing that God says is, I am worthy of worship. Our God is worthy of worship. He is deserving of worship. There's two key reasons, and there's a whole lot more reasons that you could say, but I'm going to give you two key reasons that, that come out of this text and somewhat reaching back to last week. The first reason is this, he is Lord. He is the Lord of armies. He's the creator of the universe. He is king of kings, Lord of lords. He is a mighty, awesome, ruling God. And sometimes in this world, we lose sight of the fact that he created it all. And at one day, one point, he could end it all. He's the giver of life. He is the Lord. He is sovereign he is ruler. He sits outside of time. He sits above the universe, Scripture says. He is the Lord. There's nothing that you and I could do if, if he decided not to give us breath past today. Every breath we take is a gift of God. Every step we take is a gift of God. He is ultimate in authority. He is ultimate in power, and he is ultimate in knowledge. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, and omnipresent. And simply because of who he is, and I say that with great intention, because of who he is, regardless of any action that he ever took on our behalf or against us, simply because of who he is, he is deserving of worship because he is God. Now, oftentimes, you and I interact with God 
not necessarily because of who he is, but because of what he's done. Our, our hymns of worship today focused on the incredible sacrifice of God sending his son to die on a cross for us, to shed his blood, to, to be buried in a borrowed tomb, to be resurrected again. And we worship him and we bring thanks to him because of what he's done. And certainly he deserves our worship because of what he's done. And that is wrapped up in his great love for us. He loves us, as we looked at last week. He emphasizes it this week with a father's love. He loves us. He cares for us. He provides for us. He's given us the bounty of a beautiful universe. He, if we looked at, if you looked at the passage in Genesis 1 today, anything beyond, before, after the uh, verses 26 and 28, he, he created a, 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 an incredible bounty of food, of, of animals and beasts and, and, and of, of plants that, that we can consume for, for our benefit and for our pleasure. He, he created a unity between man and woman. He created fellowship with himself. All of those things he created because he loves us with a father's love. And then even when we mess up, just like a father who loves and disciplines his children, he provided a way for us to come back into a relationship with him through his son. He is worthy of worship because of who he is. He is worthy of worship because of what he's done. He is a father who loves and cares for us. He is worthy of absolute, unmitigated adoration. And that's what worship is. Worship actually comes from a root of, of the idea that I need to give to him in response to what he's worth. How much is he worth to me is reflected in my life, in my attitudes of what I bring to the table in worship. It's not just about a song. It's about a condition of our heart. God is worthy of worship. Here's the problem he had with Israel at this point. They'd gotten frustrated, I guess. They'd gotten tired. They'd gotten bored. And, and they begin to ask the question, why are we even doing this? You know, things haven't worked out that well for us anyway. Our nation still went into captivity. Even when we came back, we started rebuilding the walls. We still had enemies. We still had all kinds of struggles. We still had turmoil. Why does it even matter? Is there really a God? Does he really care? They begin to ask questions and begin to doubt. In fact, even to a point where the Scripture says a little bit further down in the text that, that they looked at the altar and they found it to be a nuisance. Coming to church is not just boring, it's a nuisance. It gets in my way. There's other things I could be doing on the Sabbath. There's other things I could be doing other than offering sacrifice. I could, I could make money on this day. I, I could make money off, off of this animal who's without blemish. Why would I bring that animal? Doesn't matter anyway. I'll just bring a blemished animal. Nobody's going to care. I'll bring a, a blind, a lame animal. Nobody, nobody cares. If you lose sight of the fact that God is and that he is holy, then worship has no meaning. There are some who will continue to come to an experience of worship in the church because of the fellowship, 
or because that's what they've always done, maybe out of habit, maybe because they like the songs, or maybe they, they, they want to see the, the show that's put on. But worship will lose its meaning because you're, you're simply there for some other reason other than the fact of coming before God and, and recognizing sacrificially who He is and what He's done. And so, what happened is the, the leaders begin to bring less than their best. In fact, the people begin to bring less than their best to worship. And when we do that, when we offer less than our best, and what you see happening here in verses 8 down through verse 11 in particular, you bring a blind animal for sacrifice, and you ask, uh, you, you know, what's wrong with that? God says, is that not wrong? And then he, he touches on something that, that helps humans get it, because we don't see God generally. We, we, don't, we don't have this, you know, he's not right here before us. But if, if we were to... Uh, invite a key leader or a, a famed uh, movie star into our presence who we adore and, and, and who we like. We'd, we'd want to fix them the very best steak. We'd want to provide the best meal. We'd, we'd want to have our house cleaned to, to, to where there was no speck left in it. We'd want to present the very, very best for those whom we respect and whom we honor. Why would we do any less than bring our best before a holy God. But when we do, what we're doing is we're doing just that. We're showing him lack of respect. If we're willing to bring him less than our best, we're willing to bring less than what he's demanded, less than what he's asked for. If we're willing to do what it takes to get by in our relationship with God, it's because we don't respect him. It's a direct sign that we no longer have reverence for him. We don't care that much about what he thinks. Oh, maybe we do in the back of our head, but not to the level of respect. When we bring him less than our best, in a lot of ways we're demeaning the nature of God. If we truly understood who he is in his glory, we would not bring him less than the best. It's as though we say, oh, okay, there's a God up there, but it's not that big a deal. And so we don't bring him at all, our all. When we offer less than our very best, we also, a lot of times, just simply show lack of faith. Maybe we believe that there is a mighty God, but we don't necessarily believe that he cares about me. And so am I really going to make it a point and, and Malachi deals with this issue here in a couple of weeks of bringing our tithes and offerings. Am I going to make it a point of, of bringing my tithe to God's storehouse if I'm not sure that he cares about me or he's going to take care of me? Our, our, our tithe and our offerings represent a faith in God, that we have a trust in him. And, and when we look at our bank account, maybe we're going, man, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to trust God anyway. God demands and deserves our trust. And when we fail to bring him our best, we exhibit a lack of faith. And then ultimately, when we fail to obey his words, we exhibit, or we exhibit a lack of love. Jesus said, what, in John 15, the night before he went to the cross, he's talking to his disciples on the way through the Garden of Gethsemane as they walk by a vineyard and, and he gives them the, 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 the discussion about the vine and the branches. 
And he looks at his 11 disciples that are still with him, and he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. When we fail to worship him as he calls us to worship him, it's a, it's a sign that we've lost our first love. We may say we love him. We may say it at the end of our prayer. But if we are unwilling to obey him, if we're unwilling to worship him with all of our heart, if we're willing to bring him anything less than our very best, it's a sign that we've lost our love for him and our sense of love for what he's done for us. God is worthy of our worship. Our worship requires that we offer our best. Third, failing to recognize God's word in our attitudes and actions. How, do we, how is it that we fail to, to worship? I think oftentimes it's how we approach his throne. When we approach this even this time on Sunday morning, when we approach it and we don't have our heart prepared and we approach his throne lackadaisically without a sense of awe and reverence, we fail to worship him as he deserves. How we approach his word, how important and how valuable is the word of God? Is it something that, that, that you have in your, your phone or your iPad that you open up on Sunday morning? Is it something that you go to uh, for quick thoughts to prove a point? Is it something that you Google when you get in an argument on Facebook because you want to prove something to someone else? Or is God's Word your meat, your sustenance? Is God's Word something that you, you live on? As Jesus said, like, like your, your bread and your water is God's word something that feeds your soul, that feeds your spirit? When you have a respect for who God is, when you have a reverence for who he is, his word, what he has to say, is going to matter to you. When I was a young man and I had uh, went off to college the, the year before Susan did, each week I would uh, generally receive multiple cards or letters from Susan in the mail. I could not wait to get to my little mailbox in Jennings Hall at Howard Payne University to open that mailbox just in case there was a card or there was a letter from Susan in that mailbox. And, and more weeks than not, there would be two or three days that I would receive. Every once in a while, there would be a package that had fresh-baked cookies in it also. I mean, this woman was just pursuing me like crazy. Uh, she just she couldn't hold back. I loved and cherished and rejoiced in reading her words to me. If we truly recognize who God is and we worship him for who he is and what he's done, we will cherish his word. We'll love his word. We'll go to his word. We'll live in his word. His word will be transformative in our lives. There's a whole lot, there's more reasons than that to focus on the word of God. But just because of who he is and that he sent his son to die for us and that is his story that he delivered to us, we ought to be driven to his word. If we approach his word lackadaisically, if you can look back over the last week and say, I have not picked up my Bible 
to read his word. I have not dwelt on his word. It's a sign that your, your worship, your respect, and your love for an almighty God has faded. How we approach his grace. What do we do with the fact that he sent his son to die on a cross for us, to shed his blood so that we could have everlasting life? Do we cherish that? Do we rejoice in that? Do we tell others about that? Or is it just a story to us now? See, when Israel focused on the exodus, the deliverance that God provided for them out of slavery, Israel would be on top of their game in worship. When they took their eyes off of the incredible act of grace that God poured out upon them, and they would start moaning and complaining and griping about other things around them, they'd lose sight of who he really was and what he'd really done. When you and I forget that were it not for his act of mercy and grace on the cross, we would be broken sinners living in darkness, headed for an eternity, separated from God. Were it not for his grace, no matter how good you think you are, if it were not for the grace of God, we would be without hope, every last one of us, because there's not a single person here or online that might be listening to or watching this message. There's none of us that are worthy of God. There's none of us that are worthy of worship. There are none of us that can stand in the presence of a holy God in our own strength, in our own goodness, in our own righteousness. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and we're all deserving of that eternal separation because of our sin. His grace changed all that. And, and when we fail to worship him as, as he deserves, it's because we are trampling upon the grace of God. We're taking for granted what he did on the cross. When we fail to recognize who God is in worship, we often do it in how we approach his commandments See, we, we like to take some commandments and recognize that they're commandments from God. We like to take other of his commandments and make them suggestions. When we fail to recognize the authority of God's word and his commandments and their, their authority in our lives in particular, we have demeaned the authority and the power of an awesome, mighty, holy God. And finally, we also, we, we, it signifies that we are failing to trust him. When our worship becomes half-hearted and lackadaisical and we become lazy in our worship, it's a sign that we no longer are fully trusting him with our whole heart and our whole lives and our families. And then as you walk through this text, you see this, this discrepancy, this struggle that, that, that Israel is having and the Lord is speaking back to them. And he tells us there in, in verse 11, there's something I don't want you to miss because this is so, it's just a truism. Verse 11 says, my name will be great among the nation. Now you have Israel who declares themselves, they, they are the people of God, but they have failed in their worship. And God looks at him, he says, guys, one of these days, my name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun until its setting. 
incense and pure offering will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations. Whether or not you and I choose to worship God wholeheartedly today or tomorrow or next week as we walk throughout this life, whether or not we choose to worship him wholeheartedly, one day he, we will. Because one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Four times in the book of Revelation, you see something like this, this phrase, the Lord will be worshiped by every nation because he is the Lord of armies. Revelation 7, 9 through 10, you see this expression. Let me get there quickly. Where the Lord has told us that there is going to be gathered around his throne a multitude who will worship him. And John says this in Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude. From where? From every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, "'Salvation belongs to our God.'" who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. There is coming a day when every single one of us will bow down and worship a holy God. He will be worshiped by every nation because he is God, because he is worthy of worship. He gives some sincere warnings here to the Israelites and to us. The first thing he tells them is that when we continue to refuse to repent and we continue to bring him less than our best, verse 14 says, we will be cursed. Who, this deceiver who is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name will be feared among the nations." If we don't listen to him, he goes on in chapter 2, if you don't listen and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you and I will curse your blessings. And in fact, I've already begun to curse them because you are not taking them to heart. And then verse 3, look and I'm going to rebuke your descendants. Then he becomes really straightforward. And I will spread animal waste over your faces and the waste from your festival sacrifices and you will be taken away with it. What does God really think about us bringing half-hearted worship before his throne, bringing less than our best? What does he really think about that? I don't think he leaves us any ambiguity. He says, if you continue down that road after you've been warned, you continue to bring less than your best. You continue to worship me with half your heart and not bring me your best. I'm going to spread the dung of your animal sacrifices on your face and you'll be taken away with it. He doesn't pull any punches, does he? He goes on to say that I would rather you shut the doors of the temple and quit acting like you're one of mine then keep putting up a front, putting on a show, and doing it half-heartedly. 
Why would that be? Why is it that he would rather us not worship at all than to worship half-heartedly? Because when we worship half-heartedly, we drive more people away from God than what we draw to him. God's desire is that we come with our whole hearts or we don't come at all. In Revelation, he put it this way, to the church that was lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. I'd rather you be hot or cold. Don't come half-hearted. Because when you come half-hearted, you do more damage to my name. When we fail to worship with sincerity, with our heart completely devoted, God tells us that he will even curse our blessings and beyond that, he will even, we will see the impact on our descendants. He tells us there in chapter 2, verse 3. There's a meme that was making rounds over the last few weeks in social media that, that my mind immediately went to when I read this. And some of you may have seen it. It's called the four-generation fade. When parents don't make, and I'm, I'm going to replace the word here, not just church, a high priority, but when, when parents don't make their relationship with Christ and their worship, a high priority for their kids. That's the first generation of faith. Parents don't make it a high priority. Kids grow up making it less of a priority for their kids. In the third generation, those kids grow up and make it no priority for their kids. And the fourth generation of kids grows up with no concept of God whatsoever. What happens when we half-heartedly come before God, our kids will look at that and go, well, it's not that important to my parents. And oftentimes, those kids will transfer that to their kids, and it'll be even less important to them. And God's Word, once again, rings true. His, our descendants will be completely rebuked by God. And then finally, after the warning he gives us some characteristics of what authentic worship does look like. So it's not all negativity. Okay, what, it, what do I need to do? What, how can I return? How can I worship with sincerity? And we see that given to us in the example of Levi. He says in, in verse 4, Then you know that I sent you this decree, and that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. What did he give? It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. It begins with a recognition of who God is. We recognize that he is the holy God, and we come to him with reverence in awe of his name. Second, we walk with God. He goes on to say, true instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity. God desires that we don't just worship him at a one-time event where we come and we humble ourselves. Yes, we need to come to a place of worship. We need to come to a place where we praise and give him honor and lay our hearts out before him. And I believe he has given us a Sabbath for that reason. But second, we also will walk with God every single day of our lives. If you truly find worth in a relationship with a holy God, you won't just spend time with him on Sunday morning. You'll find time to spend with him on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. If he is worthy of your devotion, it'll be wholehearted and not just one day a week. Third characteristic of worship is we practice real repentance. 
the lips of the priest will, I'm sorry, back up. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned from many iniquities. This true worship does not mean that we will never sin. Levi sinned. But when Levi sinned, he repented from his sin. When you and I fail, when we fall, we will quickly turn back to God because we're ashamed and we're embarrassed. One of the indications that our society as a whole has drifted so far from God is now sin is no longer called sin. In fact, oftentimes sin is not something that we're ashamed of. It's something that is celebrated. You see it on our streets where sin now is celebrated as something good and good is called evil and evil is called good. We will practice repentance from our sin when we value God as a holy God. I've heard people say something like this before. I would never want to do anything that would ashamed my mommy or daddy, that my mom or dad would find out about that would hurt them. And yet we're willing to do things that God knows about and we don't give a rip. If we truly understand who God is and value who he is and what he's done, we'll give a rip. We'll care. And as soon as we become a, aware of our sin, we'll repent and turn back to him. We'll walk in integrity. We won't put on a show on Sunday and be somebody else during the week. That's another attribute of real worship is, is it changes you from the inside out. And so it's not just a face or a mask that you put on, but it is who you are. It, it transforms your being. When you recognize who God is and you walk in a relationship and real worship with him, you will walk in integrity. And fifth, lastly, we will depend on and teach God's word. You see that also here with Levi. He says that, that uh, from the lips of the priest should guard knowledge and people should de desire instruction from his mouth. Why? Because he is a messenger of the Lord of armies. Because he declares the word of God. God's word has to have preeminence. And if we love God and we worship him and we believe that God is worthy of our worship, his word will mean something. Our lives will be rooted in it. He goes on then. And, and give some, some instruction about what's going to happen if you don't worship. But we're going to stop here because I believe that, that, that if we would focus in on those five, and I only put four in the, in the outline that appeared online, but those five issues, we'd recognize God for who he is. We'll walk with God. We'll practice true repentance. We'll walk in integrity, and we will be dependent upon and elevate his word in our lives. If we'll do those five things, we will return to him in true, authentic worship in a way that he deserves. He and he alone is worthy of our worship. More than a football team, more than a college mascot, more than a, a Hollywood hero, he and he alone is worthy of our respect and our honor and our worship. And if we are going to refuse to worship him wholeheartedly, God says, I would rather you not worship at all. Close your doors and walk away because you're doing more damage to me with your half-hearted worship. I know that's not a fun message. Verse 8, he tells us that directly. He says, you, on the other hand, have turned from the way, and you have caused many to stumble. If your half-heartedness, if you're faking it, if your hypocrisy if you're walking in a way that is unworthy of God and you're still calling yourself a child of God, 
you're doing damage to the name of Christ and you're causing others to stumble. That's a good place to begin with repentance. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.